Amen. If you're able to remain standing for just a bit longer, please do so. Either way, turn to James chapter 2. It's on page 1012 if you'd like to use a Bible from the church. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord this morning. I, I wanted each of these songs to be appropriately fitting uh, for us to begin a new year in focus upon the Lord. And so I pray that they've been helpful to you in that way. And these guys made them sound beautiful, grateful for that. James chapter 2, this morning my plan is to start at verse 14 and to preach down through verse 20, but I'm going to go ahead and read all the way down through verse 26 and uh, give us the fuller flow of, of this passage. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active alongside with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. And we would pray now for your presence, your help, that as we look at this passage, as we begin to look at it this morning, that you would be at work in our midst, in our hearts and lives. We, we want to understand what you are telling us here in this passage. But moreover, we want to be transformed by what you've declared in this passage. So Father, be worshiped now, even as we receive your word. For we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're back in James now. We've take, we took three weeks uh, 
of vacation time out of James. And now the new year is upon us, and uh, we are resuming our study in James. James uh, uh, continues addressing some of the pertinent, practical considerations of the Christian life. And what I've read this morning is, is really something of the heartbeat of, I think, the spirit of what James is trying to convey to us about the importance of the practical demonstrations of a true life of genuine faith. This unit, the verses that we've just read, explains the necessity of works as an evidence of true faith. This unit, we begin reading in verse 14, and Lord willing, by next week, we'll be all the way down to verse 26. So we'll take two weeks at least, uh, and, 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 and because this, this, this serves as a particular unit of focus. And uh, I'll just point out a couple of structural things that indicates that. For instance, look there at verse 17, the very end. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Look at verse 20. Uh, a related thing he says to this, the end of verse 20, uh, that faith apart from works is useless. And, and then notice how he concluded our unit there in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So in verse 17 and verse 26, uh, faith without any evidence of works is a dead faith. Uh, in verse 20, faith without any uh, uh, expressions of works is a worthless faith. So we're, we're talking here, honestly, not about a true, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about a kind of faith that is characterized twice as dead and once as useless. Now, for our time together this morning, I, I want to meander for a little bit on the front end, and then I want to touch on the two points that are outlined there in your bulletin. And then, since verse 20 kind of is a transitional verse, it kind of segues into what follows next week. So after I touch on the two points, I, I want to kind of meander a bit more by, by pulling some of the things that the Apostle Paul says about these related issues, and then we'll try to wrap up our, our time this morning. Because on the surface, as we have just read what James has just said about faith and about works, at first glance, there seems to be some conflict between the Apostle Paul and the, the Apostle James. And so even as I am this morning going through James, and James will get the bulk of our time, both this morning as we interact with these verses and next week as we interact with these verses, I'm going to pull from Paul as well to, to help us. So for instance, um, one of the things that I just read in verse 24, I don't know if you've noticed this, um, when in, in speaking of, of faith and works, he says in verse 24 of James 2, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, compare that to something that Paul says in Romans 3, 28, when he says, 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Hmm. Feels like a contradiction, doesn't it? Feels like Paul and James um, are at odds with each other. But what I'm going to suggest to you this morning, what we're going to come back and re-suggest to you next week, is that as we take a careful look at James in light of Paul, and vice versa, Paul in light of James, we will find not a contradiction, but we will find an important clarification between the relationship of faith and works. Now, to do that, though, uh, we have to really lean in closely to both what Paul and to what James are saying. We can't be sloppy. We can't be, can't we, we can't be broad and generic. We have to be, well, as James and Paul are, we have to be careful and precise. And that's what he does exactly in verse 14 as he opens us up on this topic, this unit of thought about the role and the relationship between faith and works. Look at verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone, and here's our first thing we have to really carefully attend, or, or, or pay our attention to, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? As we sort this out, there are multiple ways to mishear what James is saying. There are multiple ways uh, for you to mishear what I say James is saying, and there's multiple ways that I could missay what James is saying. So I know this is New Year's Day morning, and uh, uh, it, you know, it's, there's maybe a, a bit of brain fog still kind of circulating around. Uh, but James is very precise and careful in his wordings. And so we're going to have to be very careful and precise in our hearing and in our understanding of what James is saying. James does, does not acknowledge that the person in this scenario truly has faith. Only that he claims or says that he has faith. Now, I've got probably more than I, I can say in this, past, in this time together, but I've got to illustrate this. Many of you know um, uh, Helen and Harvey Marchbanks. They were so dear to us and in our church, and, um, but... Um, on the occasion of Helen's 63rd birthday, I renewed their 50th wedding anniversary vows. Now, you do the math. How old was she when she got married? She was 13 years old. And um, one Saturday afternoon in October, uh, Helen and Harvey uh, went to a justice of the peace in North, Northeast Arkansas to get married. 
Helen, Helen's mom and dad were, were busy uh, harvesting the cotton crop, and so they couldn't go. But Harvey's dad went, and Harvey's dad told them, now, now I'm here to tell you I'm a Christian, and I'm not going to lie for the two of you all. On the marriage certificate, Harvey wrote down that he was 18, and he really was 18. On the marriage certificate, Helen wrote down that she was 18, and she wasn't 18. She was 13. So, I, by the way, I told them that they weren't legally married. They'd been living in sin all this time. But, but anyway, uh, but the justice of the peace looked at Helen and said, young lady, are you sure you're 18? And she said, yes, sir, I am. He looked at Harvey's dad and said, sir, is that lady 18? And he said, she claims to be. We're dealing with a claim here. The guy that James is describing claims to have faith in Jesus Christ. That's key. James is not questioning the saving value of genuine faith in Jesus. He is questioning, however, the saving value of a self-declared faith. James is helping us tremendously, not contradicting what Paul is saying, but clarifying what Paul teaches us, clarifying what true faith consists of. James is not disputing for one moment if faith has saving value. He is disputing that faith that a person merely claims to have, irrespective of outward evidences, has any saving value. Well, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about does a claim to faith, does a claim to possess faith constitute the true possession of faith? And there's two points I want to touch on just briefly by this. They're in your insert if that's helpful to follow along. Um, but And these two points coincide with um, verses uh, 15 and 16. That's the first point. And then verses 17, 18, and 19 That'll be the second point. A faith that does not show is dead. That's the conclusion he reaches in verse 17. He'll pick it up again in verse 26. But then the conclusion he reaches in verse 20 is a faith that does not show is useless. Look, look at those one at a time. In verses 15 and 16, after he's introduced the subject to us in verse 14, James illustrates the danger of a dead faith. A dead faith, unlike a living and genuine faith, bears no evidence of life. Makes sense, doesn't it? A dead faith bears no evidence of life. Only a living faith bears evidence of life. A living faith that will be seen in next week's illustration, uh, the living faith of Abraham, if you would. But right now we're dealing with this hypothetical scenario of someone who, who claims to have a faith, but there's no evidence of that. And it's, he says it's a dead faith. It does not display any genuineness of its legitimacy through works. And I'm going to say this again, but... It's really important. James is not going to teach us that the equation for salvation is faith plus works. No, again, we have to be careful. What, but what James is 
teaching us is that salvation comes through a faith, but that faith is a faith that does work. Subtle difference. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. It is faith that works equals salvation. Here's the illustration, verses 15 and 16, of uh, someone who, um, who uses words, and yet they are empty, dead words. If, um, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see the, the theme that he's picked up on? What did he begin in verse 14? What good is it, my brother? What good is it to say you have faith but have no evidence that you have faith? What good is that? What good is it to look at someone who is your brother who is in need and for you to have the means to help them and you just say, bless you, be warm and filled, and then you cut and run? The words are not wrong. Good words. You, you, you find those words of affirmation and blessing even in the scripture itself. It, I mean, it, it, it is good to verbally bless and to affirm someone. It's a good thing. But it, it is wrong to use those words even as you are seeing a need and have the means to meet that need and do nothing beyond wagging your tongue. James is saying something that similar to what John says in 1 John chapter 3. Here, listen to this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. See, James and John, they, they touch on the same point. They, they both emphasize that truly caring for others entails words and deeds. Not words alone without deeds. Words alone refusing deeds. In fact, words without deeds evidence that something is lacking. What John says is lacking, in other words, for you to, to, to verbally uh, show care for somebody without, in having the means to do so, without actually helping in that scenario with a brother, uh, James is saying that what is, uh, John, John is saying what, was, what is lacking there is the true abiding presence of God in them. What James says is lacking is um, a true living faith in Christ. You see, James and John are just expressing in different ways the same thing. That is, to say something without backing it up and showing it shows a heart and a soul devoid of genuine spiritual life. Any of us can talk. That's why you got me up here doing this. Any of us could do this. 
Let him do it. I think he, he, could, he could maybe not mess this up too bad. Too bad, yeah. I mean, the hard thing is to translate beyond words into actions and deeds. That, that's what really shows and evidences something. Just because I'm the chief tongue wagger uh, doesn't uh, validate any sort of spiritual legitimacy with me. There has to be something deeper and more action-oriented than, than that. As I alluded to a while ago, James is not teaching um, that it is a formula of faith plus works that results in salvation. What James is actually saying is that, that it is a living faith that saves. Not a dead faith, not a useless faith, but a living, genuine faith that saves. And what James is trying to explain to us, which doesn't contradict with Paul, affirms Paul completely. What James is explaining to us is that it built within a living faith itself, works organically are inside that living faith. And thus those works visibly overflow into the world. To claim, to claim to care without showing you care is dead words. To claim to believe in Jesus without showing that you believe in Jesus is again, this is the illustration, just dead words. Have you really cared just because you acted like you cared? You spoke like you did? Have you truly trusted in Jesus Simply because you say you've trusted in Jesus? I gotta stop there for a second because I know this is gonna land on people differently. Some, some, some people have more sensitive, sensitive consciences. And, and for me to uh, question the legitimacy of someone's confession would land on some people in a way that would be crushing. And, and yet for others... Your, your conscience isn't as sensitive. It's hardened and it's seared, which is actually, you're probably the one I, that needs to hear this. So I, I understand that I could, be, I could be pushing hard on someone's heart that doesn't need to be pushed hard on this morning. And so if you're feeling the, the weightiness of this, you, I, you just have to sort out, is that the spirit of God weighing in on you or is that just your tender conscience? By the way, I know I'm not done with the sermon yet, but, but either way, if you'll just quickly run to Jesus, it'll, it'll, it will get resolved. But, but, but here, to wrap up this first illustration, to, uh, uh, James is basically saying it is bogus. He doesn't need the word bogus. That's my rendition. But, but it... It is bogus to say we believe in Jesus, but that belief in Jesus has no practical shaping implications for how you live your life. It's a dead faith as opposed to a saving faith. Second point I want to make, a faith that does not show is dead, a faith that does not show is Useless, that's the conclusion he'll reach when he gets finally to verse 20. 
Now, here in, in starting in verse 17, or verse 18, rather, verse 18, uh, James moves from his first point by way of illustration to, uh, to his second point, which is to uh, kind of counter an objection, uh, a hypothetical or a possible scenario of, of, uh, of, uh, of an objector, if you would. So he says there in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Now, it's hard to probably perfectly decipher what the dynamic is on that statement, but I think it's correct that most of our translations have that statement, you have faith, I have works, in parentheses, because that's probably the quote that he's raising that of this hypothetical uh, objection. Uh, and, and yet, by the time James is done with countering this hypothetical objection, I, I think really what he's attempting to do in verse 18 is he's trying to dismantle the notion that faith and works are just two unrelated, separated issues. Thus, in that person's mind, some people got faith, but they don't have works. No big deal. You got one. One out of two ain't bad. Some people have works, but they don't have faith. Well, all right, that'll sort itself out too. And, and so I, I think, by the way, James responds to this objection here. I, I think what he's what he's leaning in against in terms of this objection is you can't do that. You you can't you can't. While faith and works are distinguishable, they are inseparable from each other. Because here's what he says about that as he continues on. Uh, but you will say, I, you have faith, I have works. This is what he's now going back to, what his response is. Show me your faith apart from your works. You, you say you have faith, I can't see it. I'm in the secret service. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. A dead faith, going back to what you concluded in verse 17, a dead faith has no works to show. There's no life there. You say you believe in Jesus. There's no evidence of that because you're still just the same old Joe, living and loving in the same old way. All you got is some say, and you got no show. What James is saying, I'll show you, I'll back up my say by my show. Now look, I am not lord over anybody's heart. I don't even want to be lord over my own heart because every time I do, it, it, just, it, it just doesn't turn out well. So uh, there's, a, there's a plethora of people that float around this universe, particularly in North America where it doesn't really cost us much to name the name of Jesus. And they, they claim they believe in Jesus. They claim that they prayed a prayer, they walked an aisle, they got baptized and any host of religious kind of stunts and shenanigans and and, uh, and, and, and yet, there is no measurable, alterable change in them. And ultimately, I can't sort that out. But what we can say is James, and before we, before we finish, Paul, and John, and every other apostolic writer 
looking at a person who says they're a Christian, who has no evidence that they're a Christian, they would just say, and this is a Greek phrase, huh? Spent seven years studying Greek just to be able to recite that for you. I know some Hebrew too, but you're not ready for that yet. So, I mean, no, no changes. That's what James is really talking about. You say you got something. You say you received something. You say you did something, but no change has occurred. Even though you, 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 you know some things about Jesus, you even affirmed some things about Jesus. You gave him a wink and a nod. He says, well, you remind me of someone else I've heard about. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. And by the way, that's mild sarcasm there. You do well. Even the demons believe like that and shudder. No, it, it is important to believe true things. But it is important that our faith consists of more than believing true things. Because if all that our faith consists of is an understanding of a couple of true things about Jesus and about God and, a, and even a, a positive affirmation about those true things about God, then, then you're in the same category of saving belief as the demons. And to tag back to where James started in verse 14, can that faith save him? Can the faith that the demons possess, just a, a mere verbal assent to reality, can that faith save him? For while they understand these things about God are true, they have no love for what they know is true. I think that may be, I would suggest to you, that's really the, the, the imagery of shudder. If I was to say, hey, for coming to church this morning, I've gotten you taken care of for lunch. Immediately after, after lunch, we're gonna, after the sermon, we're going to move into the fellowship hall, and I've made liver and onions for everybody. <laughs> oh, get out. <no. laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, that... So that illustration doesn't work for you. But anyway, um, but, but for most of us, what do you do? What do you do over the threat of liver and onions? You shudder. I know it's high in iron. I get that, you know. You dislike it. You dislike the taste of it. You bristle at it. You, you dread the thought of it. You see, to truly, savingly believe in Jesus is much more than just simply, yeah, I know that's true. Do you love it? Do you love the taste of trusting in Jesus? Is he sweet? Is he satisfying? Or do you bristle and shudder and dread the thought of it? You see, a faith that has no works, a faith that has no evidence. Well, his conclusion 
in verse 20, where he says, even the devils believe and shudder, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that, that faith apart from works is useless? And, and really, when he says, do you want to be shown, that's what he's going to do next. So this verse is kind of a transitional verse. Uh, because what he's going to do is, by, by, by way of two biblical characters, he's going to biblically make the case for why a faith that merely is a claim to faith and not a faith backed up by a changed life that shows itself in works is a dead and useless, i.e., non-saving faith. But before we're done, that's the two points. Let me, let me go back to meandering for a second. You say, when did you stop? Okay, all right, that hurts. But, but let me go back before we're done and, and, and try to pull together some ways in which Paul and James are buddies. They are not at odds with each other at all. But I think it is helpful to acknowledge that each have an emphasis or some emphases that are different facets of what conversion looks like and consists of. Neither contradict the other. When Paul speaks of faith, he means real, earnest, genuine, heartfelt trust in Christ. James doesn't mean something other than that, but, but what James means by faith is something that must be demonstrated as real in one's life. In other words, Paul, in his context, what he's up against, what he's trying to correct, is Paul is concerned with those who have outward religious acts with no heart of reliance upon the Lord. Now, what James is addressing here is helping us to understand that where there is true, genuine heart reliance upon the Lord, it will show itself in outward obedience. Paul does not disagree with that. In, in fact, Paul and James are synchronized when it comes truly to um, the role that true faith plays in a manifestation of real obedience. It was in January of 1981. I'm sorry, January of 1980. Just feels like 1981. It was so quick. It was in January of 1980 that I read, at least in my own memory for the first time, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I left out a part, and this is not your own doing. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God. Um, uh, this, it's, it's, this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that was the moment that the Lord used in my life to wake me up to the fact that 
for me to live in right relationship with a holy God, that would come not through the works that I would do, but that would come through relying upon the work that Jesus has done at the cross. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God. Uh, and this is not your own doing. Lest anyone should boast. But it was, it was a couple of years later when, for some reason, I think I probably read the very next verse in January of 1980. For, uh, but it didn't, it didn't stick. But it was, it was sometime later that I, I read... The, the, the very next verse went electric, if you would. The very next verse, even though verses eight and nine say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, uh, and, and this is not your own doing. It's a, it's a gift from God, not a result of work so that no one should boast. But what does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus um, uh, to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's not disagreeing with James. James says that if you say you have faith, you need to demonstrate that by your works. What Paul is saying is that if you have genuinely been saved by grace through faith, that will evidence itself in works. Or let me put it this way. Salvation does not result from works but salvation does result in works. A claim to knowing Jesus that does not result in the evidence of knowing Jesus is a life that does not know Jesus. And James would, as we conclude, James would say in, 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 in verse 20 again, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, He just called us a fool. That's not very nice, is it? It's a wonderful word of warning. For what James is saying to us at the start of this new year is don't be fooled. You say you've got something. Do you really got it? Does it show? You say, well, what should I do? I, 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 do I got it or do I don't got it? I think I got it. I say I got it. Someone else said I got it. Even the preacher said I got it. I don't know if I got it or not. What, what should I do? All who verbally claim to believe in Jesus, who actually show no or little evidence of faith in Jesus, no love for others, no obedience to the Lord, no works of service, what should you do? Immediately trust in Jesus. Immediately turn to Jesus right now. Before the clock turns noon, turn to Jesus Christ. Trust only in him. Honestly grasp um, the depths of our sinfulness, separating us eternally from God. Genuinely rely upon Jesus as the one who has successfully accomplished by his work on the cross all that is needed to pardon us and to bring us into right relationship and earnestly acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord. It seems that the hardest person to come to Christ 
is one who says he already has come to Christ, but has no fruit, no fruit of love, no fruit of works, no fruit of obedience, no change in life to show it. And what James is saying is even though you say it, when you don't show it, you don't possess it. Turn to Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word says to us and teaches us. Thank you for how your word speaks to us. Thank you for the presence of your spirit to help us. Prayer is that this morning we are actively, consciously, genuinely, earnestly relying upon Jesus and Jesus alone. And yet that reliance on Jesus is really just an evidence of your spirit within us, a spirit that not only empowers us to confess with our mouths Jesus as Lord, but enables us to begin to grow and increase in our actual demonstration of that reality. So Father, may you take pleasure in the lives of your people who are trusting in you. May you be at work in us and may that show. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.